Welcome to the Wildscast. Today, Rabbi Wilds speaks with world-renowned Jewish activist Rudy Rockman. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. We are live. Welcome, everyone. Uh, I have the great honor and pleasure of hosting someone I have a great deal of respect and regard for, uh, my old friend Rudy Rockman. Um, Rudy, even though we've been we've known each other many years, I probably still mispronounce your last name. Is it Rockman? That's it. It's perfect. Right. <laughs> okay. So for those of you who may not know, although you should, because he's he's quite out there, uh, Rudy was um, Rudy was born in France, uh, moved to Israel at the age of three. He was a very early Zionist, uh, young Zionist, and two years later uh, came to the United States. Um, he experienced uh, some anti-Semitism in the year 2000 after being physically removed from a bus in London for being Jewish. And that was part of what prompted him and inspired him to enlist in the IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, as a tzanchan, as a paratrooper at the age of 17. He then came to the United States, uh, attended the University of California in Los Angeles, and then transferred to Columbia. Um, after seeing it was named one of the most anti-Semitic universities uh, in the country. Uh, as a graduate of Columbia, <laughs> not very proud of that, but uh, I can't say I disagree. Uh, Rudy is a noted speaker uh, and writer on Jewish uh, rights, and he's best known for his incredible pro-Israel activist work on social media. He's got hundreds of thousands of followers, subscribers on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, He's currently serving on the board of the Israel Innovation Fund, and he was voted in 2018. Uh, he got the 36 Under 36 Award for being one of the most influential Jews in the world. His crowning achievement, though, was when Rudy spoke at the Manhattan Jewish Experience. <laughs> A couple of years ago, we had the great honor of hosting Rudy for a Shabbat dinner. And uh, thank you so much. Shalom uvracha. It's really an honor to have you uh, live from Israel. Thank you for um, having me. Thank you, and um, thanks for working out the time zone. And tell everyone where you are in Israel. I think it would be nice for people right. to hear. Yeah, right now I'm in Yafo. Beautiful, Beautiful place. Um, it's, it's a gorgeous place, and MG hopes to get back to Israel this summer. Israel Hashem, it's one of the, I would say, most challenging parts of COVID is being separated from our precious homeland. Um, Look, Rudy, you've studied at a, a number of American universities. We talked about Columbia, uh, where we actually first met. Uh, I remember watching you put up that anti-apartheid wall um, on campus. Um, what made you switch to Columbia and become such a huge advocate on behalf of the state of Israel? Sure. Well, I was a student at UCLA. It was first my first real experience with any sort of anti-Semitism on college campuses, at least in the modern sense, where there's uh, an ideological shift trying to plague the next generation to get them to become against Israel and to demonize uh, the Jewish people and delegitimize our right to self-determination. And once I realized the problems that was happening, I realized that the situation wasn't bad because the anti-Israel side was so strong, but because the pro-Israel side was so weak. And so I started to look at Jewish organizations, Jewish leaders, community members, rabbis, uh, and I realized that the only things that we were doing are very pro-Israel events in the sense of talking about cherry tomatoes, ways, and drip irrigation, so things that make us uh, feel superficially proud about Israel, um, but only in Jewish safe spaces, so only in the Hillels and the Chabads, in the Apai houses, in the Jewish safe spaces, and only once in a blue moon. 
And the problem is, and the question that's asked is, why does Israel have a right to exist and who are the Jewish people? And so we were fundamentally not answering that question and also not targeting uh, the next generation and the students on campuses trying to counter the narratives against us or to create coalitions in order for people to understand and respect us. Uh, and I started to ask, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, what's going on? Why aren't you guys doing anything about it? And I started to get very apathetic responses of, oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. And um, when I when I looked more deeply into it, I realized that it is us that have to go to these places. And I heard from many of my friends that they didn't want to go to anti-Israel schools. So I did a Google search and I typed in number one most anti-Semitic school. Columbia University came up number one. And so that's where I decided to transfer. Wow. Wow. I mean, thank you for sharing that. You know, um, I'm in a complete agreement that we are ill-equipped with information, knowledge, and wisdom about our basic story. Okay, your argument about Israel's right to exist centers around this idea of the Jewish people being indigenous to the land. Right? You've compared Israel or Israelis to Native Americans, and you view Zionism as a movement of decolonization, even though we've been accused of doing just the opposite. So this is not the way a lot of people see the situation. And, and you know, our viewers are young, interested Jews who are exploring their Judaism, many for the first time. Tell us a little more about your outlook what inspired this unique perspective and how we could be given that edge to speak up a little more. Sure. So I think it first started with uh, my identity crisis growing up, being born in France, then moving to Israel, then moving to Miami. And Miami is a very interesting place, unlike other places in America, where you don't really assimilate and become American. You identify very much so with where you were born or where your parents were born or where your grandparents were born. So even going to Jewish day school until high school, you know, people were Argentinian, Venezuelan Jews, Argentinian Jews, uh, even Cuban Jews sometimes, uh, Peruvian Jews. And so you really identified with, uh, with the place that your parents had migrated from or where you yourself had migrated from. And going to a public school after in high school, then you had the Haitians and the Jamaicans and all other places within uh, Central and South America and also in the Caribbeans and in other places around the world. And so growing up, I was always labeled the French kid because that's where I was born, although I left when I was three. Uh, that's where my parents were born and raised. They had thick French accents. And when I'd go back to France, I was considered uh, the American cousin. And my mom's side is Sephardic. My dad's side is Ashkenazi, but my dad adopted my mom's customs, so I was raised fully Sephardic. And I wanted to figure out what my answer was. And after that experience at the age of seven, and kind of put everything into perspective, where I realized that we, me and my mother were kicked off of a bus, not because... Uh, where I was born, where I grew up, where I lived in, where I traveled to, where I resided in, what passport I have, what I believed in or didn't believe in, but because of who I was. And who I was was a Jew. So I started asking myself even deeper questions. What does it mean to be a Jew? Because we're constantly saying, even as a Jewish people, that Judaism is a religion. And when we as a Jewish people say it's a religion, we mean it's an identity. We mean it has the traditions. We mean it has the connection to Hashem. We mean it has the connection to Eretz Yisrael. Uh, it has you know, a language. It has all these things that make up the Jewish people. That's what we define it as a religion. But the word religion is not a Jewish word. It's an English no, word no. or a Latin word and a French word and a Spanish word. And the way it's defined in the Goy dictionary or in other languages is as uh, the belief system in a God, deity, book, or prophet. So if you don't believe in the God, deity, book, or a prophet, you are not a part of the religion. Let's take Christianity, for example. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're not a Christian. And to become a Christian, you accept Jesus, and within a second, you're a Christian. If you don't believe in Muhammad or in the Quran, you're not a Muslim. And to become a Muslim, you accept Muhammad, you say a prayer, you wash your ears, your elbows, and your feet, and you become a Muslim. 
If you don't believe in the philosophy of Buddha, you're not a Buddhist. And to become a Buddhist, you just have to identify with its philosophies. So those are religions, which are only belief systems for any people, and really belief systems that cross over borders to different nations. And when we look at the Jewish people, we're not only a belief system. We're much more, definitely also included. And we're not for any people. We're for one people. And it's not the ideas that cross those borders. It's the physical people that cross those borders. So I realized that Judaism is actually not a religion at all. Because if you look at other native civilizations like the Aztecs, the Mayans, like I said, the Native Americans, the Native Canadians, the Aboriginals, the Maoris, the Polynesians, they also have belief systems. Almost all of them have a connection to a or to several deities. And if an individual within that nation, that civilization rejects the belief in their deities, that doesn't all of a sudden make them no longer yeah. Native American or so, no longer so, Maori. And no one is so calling them a religion. Right. So so just to cut you in into, so you're making a distinction between let's say Christians, Muslims, um, that are really about the faith system and not the ethnicity, and let's say the Aborigines, Polynesians, and so on and so forth, that are really both. And you're saying that the Jewish people, are, we're, in a sense, we're more similar to the Aborigines, let's say, or the Native Americans, that have both an ethnicity, a people, and a faith, and a belief system. Yeah. It's yeah. funny, because, and you know, yeah. I'm just jumping, because I want, I want people to get this clear, because because we, we got locked in with the three great monotheistic faiths. And, 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 and uh, as a result, and by the way, you know what the greatest, as they say in French, <laughs> nafgaminas, one of the great ramifications of this distinction is conversion. Mm -hmm. When someone wants to convert to Judaism, what do they have to do? They have to go right. through years of a process of adopting the identity, the culture, the history, the aspiration, the suffering that comes along with the people, right. uh, the Torah, everything, and then be accepted yeah. by uh, an elder to, to Amisad. And actually, Native Americans have a similar process in which the, someone also has to go through a very long process of adopting the identity, the culture, the history, the language, and then being brought up to a council of elders that then would choose to accept them into the nation or not. So it's almost identical exactly to yeah, becoming a Jewish people, and, yeah. and no one is considering them a religion. In fact, religions don't have rights to lands, peoples do. And we say, Am Israel Chai, not Dat Yehudi Chai. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have a connection Wait, and the faith of our people. Did everyone understand what Rudy just said? We say, Am Yisrael Chai, um, which is mean the, the Jewish people. Right? We don't say Dat Israel, which means in English, the religion of Israel. Now, religion is very, very important. It's part of who we are. But there's two aspects. That's really, I just, I wanted to bring that out because there's just very, there's just a lot of ignorance on that. So keep going with me. I'm sorry to cut you off. Yeah. And you said something else about the three monotheistic faiths. And this is something that I've actually been thinking uh, a lot over the few years. Um, you know that Jewish people, we can pray in mosques, but we can't pray in churches and we can't pray in temples. And the reason that we can't pray in those places is because they believe in idols. There's the idol of Jesus, there's the idol of Buddha, or whatever, whatever else. And Muslims also submit to Allah or to Hashem, which is this oneness. So I actually don't see Judaism at all as a monotheistic religion or as monotheism, because polytheism is the belief in several different gods. And monotheism is the belief that only one item is God. So let's say my AirPods, I had three AirPods, I take out two and I say, no, only this AirPod is God. But Judaism doesn't say one individual thing is God. It says everything and everything included is Hashem. Hashem is one. Shema Yisrael Adonai Lonu Adonai Echad. God is one. Not there's one individual God. And both uh, Judaism and Islam believe that Hashem is one, which is panentheism, not even monotheism. 
So I think that we have to go through a sort of spiritual decolonization, not only decolonization of our identity, but decolonization spiritually and how we even understand our own connection to what Hashem is, which with time amongst the colonizers and through colonization, we started to uh, classify ourselves or see our own identity and spirituality through the lens of, for example, the, the Christians in white societies, even the division of our community with Orthodox conservative reform. No Sephardi or Mizrahi or Ethiopi or any other community outside of the Ashkenazi community had these divisions because that's how the church divided the Christians. So we just used that wow. and applied it to ourselves. Yeah. yeah, this is all very historically accurate, I have to say. And I think our understanding also, we believe in one God as opposed to the Hindus who have multiple gods. No, the one God that we profess, you said it beautifully, Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokein, Hashem Echad, is that we're all reflection of one unifying force of which we are all from. And, and that is also the Islamic view as well. That's, that's absolutely correct. Um, so uh, do you get a lot of pushback, you know, when you compare, let's say, the plight of Israelis? Because here you're now taking this theological perspective, if you will, and you're bringing it into the world of politics. And you're saying that Israelis are an indigenous group. So t tell me about the because I've watched some of your videos and you're clearly getting pushback on that. Sure. So so being indigenous, we have to be sure that we define the terms that we use in order for us to truly understand what we mean, because at the end of the day, terms without definitions are just, you know, voices or, or, or sounds that you're making out of your mouth. So being indigenous is a few things. One, you're the pre-colonial identity, meaning you're the identity that existed of a native people fundamentally connected to that piece of land and eternally connected to that piece of land that existed prior to the colonization of that land. So if you dig in the land and also if you go by the Torah or by history books or whatever source one wants to use, the first peoples are the Hebrews. The descendants of the Hebrews are the Israelites. The descendants of the Israelites are the Jews, and we are the Jewish people. So we are the nation of Israel, the Hebrews, B'nai Israel. These are different names at different times. So we are that native civilization that was colonized lastly by the Roman Empire. That empire renamed our land, kicked up most of us out, although we always maintained a constant presence in that land. And after 2,000 years of extermination and persecution and oppression in the diaspora, we created the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever existed, where for the first time in history, a native indigenous people actually came back home revived their language, revived their civilization, revived their society, and kicked off the oppressive force being the British. That is the most successful indigenous liberation movement that ever existed. So a lot of people think that you're indigenous means that you should be weak, and that's not true, because I only hope my indigenous brothers and sisters around the world can achieve their aspirations. I support the Tibetans going back and reviving Tibet. I support the Maoris in their plight. I support the Kurds. I support the Yazidis. I support Native Americans and Native Canadians. I support all indigenous peoples to be able to liberate themselves in their own way because we all have different ways in order to achieve our aspirations. Now, the only difference with the Jews and others is that we achieved uh, a large part of our aspirations, but that doesn't change who we are. That doesn't change our legitimacy. And so a lot of people will say, well, maybe before 67, uh, Israel was the David and all the surrounding countries that were enemies of Israel were the Goliath. But today, Israel is the Goliath. And what I have to say about that is the difference between 48 to 67 till today is that Israel is more powerful, not that Israel changed. So in the story of David and Goliath, David fighting Goliath is just a young boy. But when David grows up, he becomes a king. So now we are Melech David. That doesn't mean that we're Goliath all of a sudden, just because we have power, we're still the same David. Right, so how do you then respond? Um, this is great stuff, and this is so important, I think, for people to hear. But how do you then respond to 
what would appear what sounds like a very legitimate claim on the part of the Palestinian people that we have been living there uh, indigenous, indigenous maybe we can prove historically we were there before them uh, and most of our transports let's say from Jordan or other Arab countries but they've been living there for X amount of years um, and maybe not by any kind of uh, you know Western sense of rule of government but we're there and we have national rights and we have um, you know, we have our own kind of indigenous, that word is not, it's not really technically being used correctly, but how would you then respond to a Palestinian who's claiming the same thing? Well, first of all, I work daily with Palestinians. I'm part of a movement called Habayit that unites Israelis and Palestinians together in order for us to create a better reality because there's no reality that will exist where either population disappears. Uh, first of all, 30% at least of Palestinian ancestry and DNA descends from Jews. Jews that were either forcibly converted to Christianity or forcibly converted to Islam and with time just Arabized and became part of this new identity that was created that is now called Palestinian, which is a very valid identity. The reality is that our aspirations are extremely different and don't contradict. The problem is we tend to superimpose one's needs or one, one's identity onto the other. Being Palestinian is equal in value of being Israeli, but it's not the same. Because you can be a Jewish Palestinian, you can be a Muslim Palestinian, you can be an Armenian Palestinian, you can be a Christian Palestinian, you can be an atheist Palestinian. Now, you can be an atheist Jew, but you can't be any part of any other people if you're part of the Jewish people. So it doesn't actually work. So the identities are very different in what they mean, mm -hmm. and we need to understand and not superimpose each other's definitions of identity. And furthermore, we need to understand the aspirations of both peoples. For example, something that's much more important to Palestinians is local control, right? Most Israelis have no idea who their mayor of Tel Aviv or Haifa or Akko or Vilsheva is. And if they do, because they maybe saw a commercial during the election period, they definitely don't know what that person does and isn't in touch with day to day what that person is doing. But you go to Ramallah, you go to uh, Nablus, Shrem, you go to Hebron, you go to uh, Bethlehem, you go to these places, They, everyone living there knows which families are the families that run the towns. So the reality is that Palestinians need much more localized control and the Israelis, the Jews, what we used to have, which is a kingdom, right? We had a more national control. So is there a way to create a new system that will allow uh, to fulfill the needs of both populations in order for us to be able to live together in one civilization that actually fulfills the needs of both peoples? So that's I mean, a much that, more that, relevant conversation. That, yeah. So, I mean, I've heard you say that spending time talking about a two-state solution is just a waste of time and we should be spending yeah. more time thinking about a real so so is that part of your real solution and, and tell us why you don't think the two-state solution could serve both peoples i mean first of all the two-state solution is an imposition by the west and is an imposition to divide and conquer uh who said that the jews and the palestinians can't live together we always had non-jews living in a Jewish society that were equal back in Judea. So there's no reason that non-Jews can't live with us. Um, side note, I don't think that currently what we have today is necessarily a Jewish state. I think what we have today is a Western state with sort of Jewish decorations. Uh, so we have a menorah on our symbol, we have a, 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 a Magan David on our flag, and we have the language of Hebrew, but the system itself, the parliamentary right. system is right. built to, to divide, uh, you know, small parties on small issues and to focus on short-term solutions rather than long-term problems. So the structures that we have, and if you look even in the Israeli society, you have the Haredim, the religious sector that is completely rejecting uh, the system because it's not Jewish enough. 
You have the Chilonim that are saying this is maybe too Jewish or not my type of Jewish. You have the right that is saying this is too to the left and the left is saying this is too to the right. So this the system that we built here is clearly not even working for Israelis themselves and for the Jews themselves. So we need to create a whole new system that needs to exist. Now, in terms of the two-state solution, the reality is that we didn't come back to Israel because we wanted to create a safe place. We could have created that in many other places. I think Israel gives us safety because we have our home, but we don't have our home because necessarily that's our goal to achieve safety. We have our home because this is our soulmate. Right. You know, the story of Shlomo with the two mothers and there's a baby that's brought up and the two mothers are arguing, saying that this baby actually belongs to them. And Shlomo didn't have a a maternal test or DNA test to see who the real mother is. So he says, you know what? We're going to cut the baby in half. And one mother says, actually, no, no, it's not my it's not my baby. It's her baby. Another mother says, no, no, no. Cut cut the baby in half. And Shlomo was able to see that the real mother would never cut her baby in half. So if this is our land, we can't cut it in half especially Judea and Samaria, which is the cradle of Jewish civilization. For thousands of years when we've been praying and, and imagining coming back to Israel, I mean, even when we get married as Jews, we smash the glass, and, and, and res- which resembles the destruction of Jerusalem and our temple and the promise that the next generation will return back to our civilization and rebuild Jerusalem. And so when for thousands of years we've been dreaming and crying for Hebron, for Shechem, for Bethel, for Bethlehem, for all these places that are in Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, all of a sudden, that doesn't matter anymore, and the new cities of, of Tel Aviv now matters. They both matter. They're both the land of Israel, but Judea and Samaria is the heartland of Israel. So first of all, this is the, the indigenous land of the Jewish people. Other people are also connected to that land, and there's no contradiction with that. But it's not a land that we can just buy, trade, and sell. It's our soulmate. It cannot be cut. It cannot be divided. Now, ideology, ideology aside, the reality is that 600,000 Jews over living in Judea and Samaria. You know, to, to even imagine removing 600,000 people with universities, with schools, with industries, with communities, everything that you, you can imagine that's their actual civilization, not caravans, but real cities, you're going to have a civil war. All those Jews are never going to allow anybody to take them from their home. And even if you look at the IDF, 90% of combat officers are religious Zionists. You'd have a mutiny in the IDF. So we have to go away from that idea that the Jews are going to leave Judea and Samaria. Also, regardless... The aspirations of both people are to live on this land from the river to the sea equally and free. Palestinians also don't want a two-state solution. Any Palestinian that is talking about a two-state solution will only say, we want this now, and then we continue and get what's next. So any solution has to focus... But but, but Rudy, do you think that it's... I'm just trying to be realistic, because ideologically, I'm very much in agreement, you know, but I just, I don't, you know, for the next 50 years, and maybe as a rabbi you know, a faithful, hopeful rabbi, I shouldn't be saying this, but let's, you know, bottom line is most Jews are not going to set up that kind of government without the party system, without the British parliamentary nonsense that goes on. This is just the democracy Israel has chosen. Um, And how many Palestinians are going to agree to live in someone else's country? Now, I know from history that that's true. We have precedent of a Jewish country with non-Jews living peaceably within that country. But right now, that seems completely unrealistic. You know, what would you advocate just on the ground? Um, Because I know that you're against, you know, this two-state solution, and I hear it, and it makes a lot of sense, certainly ideologically. The question is practically. So, I mean, the the idea that we could create Israel after the... 
horrors that we went through in Europe and in other places was non-realistic, yet we're here. Um, so I think this idea that we can't do things um, is just something that prevents us from starting to do those things. And a lot of people say, well, there's so much hatred between Israelis and Palestinians. And it's like, okay, well, Nazi Germany, which burned Jews 10 years after that, was supporting the state of Israel. So True. if a civilization that was murdering and executing all of their Jews within a decade, so not even a different generation, can go to supporting the state of the Jewish people, I definitely think the cousins here on this land, connected to this land, loving this land, can come together and create a reality. The problem is that we think that we can't or that we're wasting our time mm -hmm. focusing on solutions that were imposed by the West and that clearly don't fit the needs of both peoples. And any solution has to focus on two things, to fulfill the aspirations of both peoples, which don't contradict, and to end the injustices that both peoples experience, which don't contradict in their solution. And a two-state solution does neither for either. Now, I don't want Palestinians to live in a country that they don't feel is their own. I want them to feel that this is their country, that this is their civilization, that they are connected to this land. I don't want there to be a wall. Now, there are many ideas of what can exist for us to go there, such as federations plan. There are many different versions of a federation plan that could potentially work, which would, again, give more power on the local level to peoples, the same way even Jews used to run ourselves. We used to be very tribal. We had 12 different tribes, different regions, different territories with different types of control. So that's just naturally how Middle Easterners ran themselves. So imagine a future that has a sort of model that is mixed of the Canton system in Switzerland and the UAE Emirates system that would work for the local peoples. But in order to get there, there has to be a process of actually moving forward. Now, in terms of wow. Palestinians, like a lot, of, a lot of Israelis will say, well, until the Palestinians can come to the table, there's nothing that we're going to do. First of all, every single attempt to make quote-unquote peace has always been a pushing this two-state solution which does not achieve justice and if you don't achieve justice you don't achieve peace b has been made with palestinian leaders that don't represent their own peoples hamas does not represent the palestinians the palestinian authority does not represent the palestinians ismail hania uh, khalid mashal uh, you know abu mazen all these people do not represent the palestinians so let's not take the words of false leaders as the words of the real local people now they'll say well why don't they speak up well, the reality is that Palestinians do not have freedom of speech. The Palestinians right. that I work with day to day cannot even go public with me or talk about different issues about being able to transcend this conflict and moving forward or put their faces out there because if they do, they get arrested. And in fact, even when they don't put their faces out there, sometimes people snitch on them and they disappear for three weeks and they come back very, very afraid because their family was threatened and they were likely tortured during that process. So we're living in a completely different reality. And in my opinion, Israel has to use its power because now it has a responsibility with that power. And what I mean by that is if something happened to me in Judea and Samaria, Israel would protect me. Why is it not protecting Palestinians there that can't even have freedom of speech? If it was empowering the next generation of leaders to actually being able to rise up and speak for their community, then we can take out the Palestinian Authority in Hamas and allow for true leaders to rise up and to be able to speak on behalf of their people. That doesn't mean they have to be pro-Israel in every single way and support every single thing that the Jews want, but you'd actually have a partner to be able to create something together. And that's where we need to start. Mm -hmm. So you, you would, uh, this is really, you would for do what you could to promote, encourage, and support, and even defend, you say, uh, grassroots movements to express the aspirations of the Palestinian people and just do away with the government institutions because they're not really truly representative, in your opinion. I mean, they're just a continuation of the status quo, and I don't see the Israeli government, at least those in power, 
um, from the right to the left, to be honest, it has nothing to do even yeah. with, with just Bibi Netanyahu um, doing anything at all to change the system. And I don't definitely don't see anything happening from the side of the PA because for them, it's functional to keep this conflict going because that's how they make their money. They have millions and billions of dollars in their yeah. bank accounts, and it's not because they invested in Bitcoin a few years ago. It's because you know all that money coming in for aid is going straight into their pockets. So we need to change the system fundamentally from the ground up, and we need to be able to unite the true activists of the future generations in order for us to build human relations and actually discuss and figure out what kind of system that we can create here that is just for all on one land. Wow. And, and are you encouraged by the Abrahamic Accords, and can that somehow fit into this vision? I mean, I will tell you, as a rabbi, um, I, I just I've, I interviewed Michael Oren on this on this podcast, and he just said they were monumental because they're not just practical. You know, the the, the agreement that Israel has with Jordan and Egypt are just basically not to kill each other. But these agreements are really cultural exchanges where we're going to, going to actually have a relationship and hear about each other's ideas. Um, can that somehow be brought into this, or is it really just? separate thing you know trying to put the politics aside that trump did it and the people on the left don't like that you know just a couple of you know sunni arab states are now making peace with israel how can we work that or can that somehow be brought around for the palestinian israeli issue or, or the vision that you're articulating well the peace that we have with egypt and with jordan is not really a piece of the people most people in egypt and jordan right. hate israel in fact, in Egypt, Mein Kampf is one of the top sellers. And if you go on Facebook to any sort of forum or groups that is Egyptian uh, or Jordanian, they mostly hate um, Israel completely. So the peace is not with the people. However, we never really had war with the people of Morocco. We never had war with the people of uh, Bahrain and the people of Oman and the people of uh, even Saudi Arabia and the people of uh, the UAE. So it was much easier to be able to uh, push that policy, although it was pretty revolutionary because for a very long time, there hasn't been a shift in accepting Israel. Um, and I think they did it for many reasons that benefit them as well. So I think it's something uh, overall good. I hope that it only leads to more collaboration in, in a right way and in a just way in the region, because my future vision is that the Middle East would be a united region and that we would help one another, uh, not only help the situation between Israelis and Palestinians, but then help uh, the situations happening all across the Middle East, even with the water crisis happening in Yemen, for example, which I think Israel should play a role in and give the water technology that we've created uh, to the, the people in Yemen so that they can actually um, be able to avoid droughts and, and uh, completely starvations from not being able to even have ag agriculture. Um, that being said, I don't think that the Abraham Accords have anything to do with the Palestinians. Um, it does not change anything on the ground for Israelis and Palestinians. And in fact, most but Palestinians it, see this. But, but could it? Could it? Could it be leveraged? No, I because, know a lot of Palestinians. Because because we have to fix the problems on the ground. We have to fix the structure. We have okay. to fix the reality that is experienced. And when we fix that, then we can build trust. So, for example, like I said before, um, if Israel was protecting. Uh, the lives of Palestinians and giving them the freedom of speech, allowing them to be able to speak up, uh, investing in infrastructure, in road building, in, in investing in new sewage uh, types of things, um, investing in education, uh, paying the jobs of, of you know public employees that are bus drivers and different things. Then we'd actually be showing the Palestinians that we have an interest in actually taking care of you within the civilization. And that would be a step forward to showing that trust. But Israel's doing nothing. 
Now, a lot of people on the Israel side, well, we didn't create this. And it's true. We can't blame the consequences of the wars that were waged to ethnically cleanse the Jewish population in 48 and 67 and 73 to completely destroy Israel. You can't blame the consequences of that and the intifadas and everything else on the Jewish people. But that aside, the reality today is we have the power. And with the power comes the responsibility. And you and I both know that part of our culture is to do tikkun olam and to be ola goyim. Well, before we talk about doing tikkun olam and ola goyim, why don't we do tikkun babayit ima dodim? Before we go fix the world and fix all the nations, why don't we fix our own home with our own cousins first? And I think we need to play a, a much more responsible you know role I, I, in this region to change things. You know, I, you just refer to the Arabs or the Palestinians as our cousins. And, and I just think the language you use is so important. You know, we live in such a cancel culture where we, we tend to only speak with those with whom we agree. And I have to tell you, Rudy, that one of the things, this is probably the thing I most um, admire, one of the things I most admire about you is how you go out and engage people with whom you disagree. And you get across your own point of view, which is radically different than the people you're engaging. And you speak to them with respect. You look at them in the eye and you continue a conversation. I'm just wondering if you can tell our listeners, A, how do you keep so cool? <laughs> it's really unbelievable. You should be a courtroom litigator. How do you keep so cool? Maintain respect with those that are really on the other side because this is so important for us. If we don't get this right, then we're going to have to keep having our quote-unquote elected officials making the peace. It's not working. And what you're advocating is a grassroots kind of um, – you're advocating a grassroots kind of conversation between Israelis and Palestinians. You can't do that if we can't look at each other in the eye, respect each other, call each other our cousins, and then somehow build some kind of coalition. So how do you manage to disagree without being so disagreeable? <laughs> I think uh, for the most part, most Israelis and Palestinians don't disagree um, because – and when I say we don't disagree is we don't disagree on what we want in the future. Um, we disagree maybe on like you know who started. We disagree on what happened here, what happened there. And I think that we usually get it right about ourselves but wrong about the other. I think that there is a more holistic truth that includes both truths together, and we have to try to figure out what that is. Uh, and we have to have an intention to move forward. We have to also realize where this stems from. The British turned us against each other. The British yeah. convinced uh, the Palestinian leaders that the Jews were the problem, uh, and they convinced the Jews that the Arabs were the problems. And so we kind of got into this mindset, and we're still really living in it, uh, that the other is the problem. Um, how I stay calm and how I'm able to communicate. First of all, I've always been calm as an individual. Of course, I've gotten mad like any other person, um, but I've never lost my cool. I've never said something in the moment that I didn't mean or did something that I didn't mean. It's just not how I function. And I kind of, when I see someone lose their cool and see red or see black in their eyes, I, I kind of find it very fascinating. Like, how could you get like that? How could you still not control what you're saying? It, to me, it doesn't make any sense. So naturally, you know, I've been like people, that. Maybe it's that's, that's a very rare that's a very rare uh, trait. Like right now, I hear some noise going on in your background over there, which is fine. I'm doing this yeah. from my home. Also, I got my kids running around, whatever. Like I, you know, no, that's fine. I didn't say that to make a comment. <laughs> I see yeah. that you just maintain your composure no matter what. Most people can't. Yeah. Any tips? I mean, breathe deeply, <laughs> you know, because you're clearly passionate about what you believe in. And um, people are less passionate than you are, you know, lose their lose their composition so quickly so okay this is the way you know god could you you've been uh 
um, you know, in, any kind of advice, because what do we, we want people on college campus to speak out. We want Jewish people not to feel intimidated, but they don't have to get angry and abusive and start taking the other, some, some of the tactics from the other side, right? We, we want people to be proud, so they have to be armed with information, but I'm talking about temper. How do we cultivate the kind of temperament? Because you know what? I think we got it from the Talmud. If you look at the Talmud, it's filled with debates after debates, people vehemently opposing each other. My favorite teaching is Beit Shammai versus Beit Hillel. Never says Shammai and Hillel. Because Shammai and Hillel are friends. Their children married each other's children. But when they are, they're houses of academy, they had you know, intellectual debates and disputes, even though they went to the heart of Judaism, they still maintain that respect for one another. You know, maybe I'm just hammering the same question home again. I'm just, it's a challenge for people. And, and no, I look, see people say, when, yeah. whenever, whenever we get into these conversations, right, on in intellectual spaces, on college campuses, in the workplace, with friends, family, whatever, um, we need to understand that the people that you're speaking to, it could be the first time in their lives that they're, that they're speaking to a Jew. It could be the first time in their lives that they're speaking to a Zionist or to an Israeli. So in those moments and in those conversations, we have the responsibility to show them our truth and to show them our reality and to show them our perspective, not to get upset, not to get offensive. And if you do get upset, use that energy, use that fire, use that passion to change that person's mind and to show them the truth. And so if we put ourselves in that situation, but we step out of it, they may never have another chance to meet someone like you. Yeah. They may never yeah. have a chance to have that type of conversation. So you have the responsibility in that moment not to use that moment to get upset and to let your ego be hurt, but really to take that as an opportunity. Wow, I have this opportunity right now to spread light where there is darkness. And I have to seize that opportunity and use the best of, of my abilities and to maximize my potential to be able to do that. And I think we have to have that outlook when we get into those situations. Plus, something that some people don't notice is I don't know what the person is going to say before they say it. You know, a lot of times they see uh, the title of the video and they see a little bit of the, the clips in the beginning and then they see the videos like, how would you even speak to that person? It was like, well, I didn't know what that person was going to say until they said it. I didn't know the person. And number two, even if they say horrible things, I'm just going to let them expose themselves. I'm going to show that I can intellectually be superior to horrible arguments like, you know, all Jews should be killed like neo-Nazis. And if it's someone that might have some anti-Semitic ideas or some internalized anti-Semitism, I'm going to show them the truth. I'm going to show them the light and of what's actually right and wrong and also include within that the more holistic reality of the Palestinians and the Israelis and also options of what you can support that actually will help people be able to transcend and move forward. And so I think if we approach a situation like that, we'll be much more successful. Well, Rudy, I don't know if you're doing this already, and I know you're a busy man, but you should start a program on college campuses in the United States and around the world, and you should be having, you can do it online, I have to tell you this, you've mastered social media a lot better than I have, but if you could do some training for some student leaders on college campus, A, the token, they need information to be able to, uh, and, and unfortunately, this is something I've been telling my colleagues for many years in the day school system, we do not train our young men and women to be knowledgeable in our own history and even modern day Zionism to be able to feel confident in having these conversations with, you know, with, with, with um, pro-Palestinian groups, let's say on, on college campus, it would be sick if you could, I don't know. Are you doing anything like that? Is there something uh, in, in terms of training? Cause if you could have 10 
Rudy Rockmans. Oh my God, on every college campus, even like a totally dumbed down version of you. Um, you give out the the scarves and you know the whole thing. Sutras. I'm sorry. So I, I, I'm starting to see a, a whole other generation being raised, a lot of which who have seen my videos and the videos of others and who have learned. Um, but we're we're living with a, a next generation that is going to be a lot stronger than the generation I came into in 2013 on college campuses where no one was really standing up. Maybe one person here and there, but for the most part, no one was standing up. No one knew of the problems that existed. No one wanted to deal with it. And you're right. Most Jews have been taught to come into those situations and aren't prepared at all. We don't know how to debate. We don't know how to engage. We don't know how to do public speaking. We don't know how to create coalitions. We don't know about the counter narratives. We don't know how to counter the counter narratives. Uh, we don't really know how to do anything. So I think that the Jewish education, for the most part, failed us. Um, whether it's our synagogues, our Jewish day schools, our summer camps, even our homes, they taught us how to be Jews in theory and not Jews in practice. Um, but the next generation uh, that has seen a lot of my videos and learned a lot of things from other places, I'm not the only source of information, are starting to uh, grow up in a much different way, uh, in a much more empowered way and ready to deal with the situation. So I'm seeing a younger generation, whether they are on TikTok and Instagram and all over places on social media, that is starting to, to take the, the initiative into their own hands. And, and what books, thank you, what books would you, I've been... Um giving out uh, Mitchell Bard's myths and facts. Uh, you know, they, they used to, uh, it was like required reading at APAC conferences. Um, I, I've read a lot of books from Michael Oren, just to acquaint ourselves. Is there anything in particular besides watching Rudy Rockman videos, which I highly encourage, any particular podcasts or um, books or articles that you would recommend? If you can't think of it now, we can talk offline and maybe I'll share with our listeners. Because I think we at MJ have a responsibility to um, educate our population as much as possible. And reading is a very simple and good way to start for a lot of people. Uh, also, you know, yeah. Alan Dershowitz wrote The Case for Israel. Alan Dershowitz has some good books as well. I'll throw those out. If there's anything that comes to mind between now and the next 15 I, I, I minutes can send so, you. Yeah. I can send you a list and then you can share yeah? it with your viewers. All right. Thanks, man. Thank you. Uh, listen, I, I want to ask you a question because spirituality is a very personal thing. Okay, um, I'm interested not only as a rabbi, but I'm interested in um, how your activism has changed your personal religious observance, if you are open to sharing a little. Sure. Um, so the reality is I've always been spiritually connected to Hashem. I never had a moment in doubt uh, in Hashem. I've always believed in Hashem. Uh, I've done every single fast since the age of seven, even the fast of the firstborn. I've always kept kosher, never ate non-kosher in my life. Um, you know, I've never missed a kiddush in my life. I've put tefillin uh, almost every single morning. So the reality is I've always been very spiritually connected, whether we can say it's to our culture, to a higher power, to what we connect to as, as Hashem uh, as a Jewish people. But I think that every person connects differently. And the way I connected 10 years ago may be different than today and will be different in 10 years. Uh, but I'm trying to grasp onto the deeper concepts, which maybe in our culture, we, we call it as more so Kabbalah, the mysticism of our culture, understanding why things are. So let's relate it to activism. Um, why is there anti-Semitism? Why is there this obsession with hating the Jewish people, with blaming the Jewish people for all problems in the world? And yes, minority groups are usually targeted, but you go to New York City, 9% of the population is Jewish, over 50% of the hate crimes against Jews. You look at other communities like people of color, uh, Hispanics, Native Americans, they also have people who persecuted them and enslaved them, but not all nations, not all people, 
not from the left to the right, not from the capitalist to the communist, not literally every single nation in all times and every sector of that is extreme within those nations hating fundamentally the Jew. The one thing that everyone agrees on is that they hate the Jew. So why Dafka against the Jewish people? Now, some people say, well, maybe it's the jealousy that you succeed. Well, first of all, we're not genetically predisposed to succeed any better than anyone else. We're human beings like any other people. That being said, our culture does revolve around a lot of things that does give the ability to Jews to have success. For example, you know, it's very recent that people are literate. It's very recent in the past 200 years that developed countries know how to read or write. Before that, most people did not know how to read or write. But Jews always knew how to read and write because we had our bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs, and we also had uh, the Talmud, and we have different rabbis challenging each other, so we learn to critically think, and also we help one another as Jews. Oh, you want to get into law? My cousin actually did law school. Maybe I'll help connect you. I'll help you write your... We tend to help one another. Now, that doesn't mean every single Jew helps one another. That doesn't mean that non-Jews help one another, but it is a mainstream part of our culture, which doesn't exist in other cultures. Um, so you add all those things together and it's a recipe for success. So it has nothing to do with our genes. It has to do with our culture and why we succeed. But we look at other communities like Asian Americans, who are one of the most successful uh, minority communities within America. And yeah, of course, there's some sort of xenophobia that exists against all peoples, including Asian Americans, but not even close to the level that happens against Jews. So that's not it. Then there's the question of dual loyalty, right? The, the Jewish people are a people and then they pretend to be Americans and French. Did we lose uh, Rabbi Welds? Are, are we back? We're back. <laughs> We're back. So then there's the question of, of dual loyalty. You know, are the Jewish this Jewish people or are they part of this? Are they that? Uh, and I do think that when we're not clear about uh, who we are and that we are a nation, that we are from Israel and this is our home, then it does cause uh, some confusion with people and some rejection uh, from others. But even that, there are other nations that have similar things and no one is rejecting those peoples uh, for those reasons. So what is the deeper, more... Uh, I, I guess, Kabbalistic reason as to why anti-Semitism exists in the first place. And if we look at the world, I see the world as one body, right? One human body. And each nation is a different organ. In fact, each nation can play several organs or play half of one and half of the other, or can play the role of none, or can play the role of a system within the body. Each nation has a choice of what organ it wants to play in the collective body that we exist. The Jewish people chose we chose, not we're the chosen people. We chose on Al Sinai, we accepted to be the nation that preserves the Torah in order to use Israel as a vehicle to do Tikkun Olam and Ola Goyim. Our mission statement as a collective is to heal this world and help other nations fulfill their potential to be able to help heal the world or bring to the world. So, what kind of system in the body, in the human body, has that role? It's the immune system. The immune system is supposed to heal the body and allow the other organs to be able to achieve their functions, to play the heart, to play the brain, to play whatever other organs you need in the body. And when you have a disease in the body, it's the job of the immune system to deal with the disease. It doesn't mean the immune system created that disease, but it's its job to deal with that disease or with that problem. And if it doesn't deal with that problem, then that disease ends up affecting the body and the body doesn't even understand where it's coming from. It just knows that the immune system is supposed to deal with it. So in my opinion, the reason why there's so much rejection, dafka to the Jewish people, is because subconsciously there's this understanding within all nations that the Jewish people are supposed to or have the ability. And if they have the ability, then that's the responsibility to actually help heal the world. And if they don't, then they're being blamed for all the problems. Again, not because we created mm, it, but because subconsciously think, they know that we have the ability to change it. So do you believe, therefore, because I'm always searching for this, and so many people are, to try to understand...
why anti-Semitism still exists and why is it in more liberal societies not being taken as seriously as other forms of discrimination? Are you suggesting, Rudy, that that is because there is somehow uh, the sense out there that the Jews are the immune system of the world? I love that analogy. I think that's fascinating. You know, my rabbi of blessed memory, Rabbi Grumblatt, was a great Torah scholar, a great student of history. And he said that when, um, when a Jew is seen as doing something wrong, people go so much crazier about it than if it was someone who happened not to be Jewish. Why? There is a double standard. And he said the same goes to Israel. Why does Israel get held to an almost impossible standard that no other country could, could keep to? And he said, because it's this, and I'm just wondering if you agree with this or not. This was his theory, because there is this idea out there that the Jew is supposed to be the, um, you know, the, the, that force in the world that does good, that is supposed to prevent others from doing the wrong thing. And therefore, people are unfairly critical of us because they're holding us to a higher standard. Do you, do you think that's perhaps a root for anti-Semitism? Yeah, I think a, a root for anti-Semitism, I mean, there's several roots, um, but I think one of them is this subconscious rejection to the Jewish people when we're not doing what our our function is and what we said our function is. We say that our goal is to do tikkun olam. We chose that. Another nation can choose that too. We're not uh, unique in the sense that another nation can say, we too want to help the world, but we say that. So let's start doing it. And then there's other things. Why, there's, why our rights are not taken seriously is because rights aren't granted, they're earned. Black people fought for their rights, died for their rights, and earned their rights. Women fought for their rights and earned their rights. And Jews have not fought for their rights and have not earned their rights. So if we want respect, we have to start demanding that respect. We have to start creating coalitions. We have to start shifting the culture to understanding what is a Jew and why should Jews being respect, be respected and what is anti-Semitic and why should that be rejected. And until we do that, we can't expect to be respected. Right. And we, this is the policy that most Jews have always had. Let's go to the top. Let's go to the king and queen. Let's go to the chancellor. Let's go to the president. Let's go to the top and let's beg them with our relations and with our money to accept us and pass policies. Let's redefine anti-Semitism to include anti-Zionism. Let's pass a bill to make BDS illegal. Let's do all these things. But the reality is that the next generation of young leaders that are going to go into politics, into media, into law, into business, into medicine are growing up completely anti the Jewish people and anti Israel because of the conversations happening on the bottom level. And eventually the politicians will have to say what they need to say in order to get the people to elect them. And if anything, the next leaders are also coming from this group that are eventually going into positions of power and going to change things. So we're always investing in short term strategies to keep our current comforts in and not actually have to deal with our problems, which are much more long-term. And it's time the Jewish people start playing the role not long-term. You know, when we say never again, it's not just we say it and it's not going to happen. It's we make the generational commitment to make sure it doesn't happen again. And it's time to take our next chapter of Jewish history into our own hands. And we haven't done that, especially in the diaspora. So I think that there are many reasons for anti-Semitism. And how, let, let me stay on that for a minute. I know it's getting late, but this yeah. is so powerful. So the first thing we talked about, we put ourselves out there as a, a conscience of the world. We put the, the people of the book. We have this Torah. And then people are, you're saying, justifiably you know, overly critical because we're being held up to, uh, you know, they're shining a light on us that maybe the rest of the other, other ethnicities or populations or religions do not have to contend with. Fine, that's one. Two, you're saying we earned the rights. Other peoples, other groups have fought for them. Okay, 
Um, I mean, it reminds me of the joke, you know, where they say that on college campus, you have, um, you know, black students who are fighting for black or African-American rights and Latino students who are fighting for Latino rights and gay students who are fighting for gay rights. And then you have Jewish students who are fighting for black, Latino, gay, and other rights. And, Which and is great, that, but let's not forget our own yeah, rights too. Right, right. It's funny because I think we suffer from that in America. I don't think our Israeli brothers and sisters suffer as much because has Israel not earned the right and the respect? Look how Israel has gloriously defended herself. Look how Israel has, with, with two hands tied behind their back, you know, um, just brought technology to other countries on the world. I have friends who are involved. My friend, uh, Sivan Barowicz, you maybe know David Barowicz's wife, who's one of my students, and I met her later. She, she's exporting solar technology to Africa. Other people, when on the MGE trip to Israel every summer, um, we, we, we bring our group to this organization called Save a Heart. When what country goes into an African country at their own expense, that they have no diplomatic relations with even, and bring children in need of heart, life-saving heart surgery, bring them to Israel, fix them, help them recuperate, and send them back home. All, that's called tikkun olam, if I haven't, right? So has Israel not earned that? I mean, what, what else could Israel do? There's much more that we need to do. Look, if someone who's making uh, a few thousand dollars a month um, gives a thousand dollars to tzedakah, that's a lot. If someone that's making millions of dollars a month gives that same amount, it's not a lot. So we have the ability to do so much more than the good things that we're currently doing. And usually the things that we're doing is usually by individuals. Sivan is an individual. She's not working for the government. It's not Israel that's doing it. It's Sivan that's doing it. Now, yeah, she's a part of Am Yisrael, but we're doing it as individuals. We're spreading like here, spreading like there, spreading like there. And of course, that's it's just coming out of us because that's what fundamentally we know we're supposed to do. But we need to do it as a whole. And the reality is when Am Yisrael knows who they are, knows where they're from, are back in their homeland, and are united behind a common vision and mission statement, we're undefeated, and we're actually going right the right way, and anti-Semitism goes down. When we're disconnected from who we are, disconnected from our land, disconnected from our mission statement, completely divided, and will not even stand up for ourselves, that's when anti-Semitism rises. So we're on a path, we're on the right path, and then we get off the derech, we get slapped by this universe back into place. So if that's plan B, getting slapped by anti-Semitism back into place, what's plan A? And I think it has to do with, again, being connected to our, our identity, connected to our land, connecting to our mission statement, and united together, and willing to stand up and to actually fulfill that mission statement. And until we do that, I think we're not really going to see a change in anti-Semitism. In fact, it will only increase. Well, I cannot think of a better uh, commercial for the Manhattan Jewish Experience. I'm sorry to use that last <laughs> that last speech you just gave, because um, that's why I started MJE 22 years ago. Because without inspiration and belief in our own selves and what we represent and who we are, we cannot be good to anyone else. And we're going to be, you know, as they too use the word Jewish, <laughs> we're going to be like a Jewish, a little. You know, and that's unfortunately the caricature of the American Jew, not quite comfortable in his or her own skin. Well, we have to reclaim that because Jewish ish is a person. So when we say Jewish, <laughs> it's a Jewish person, not kind of Jewish. Yeah. And right? that's what it says in Perkei Avot, that you should be an ish. Wow, that's great. 
Oh, they can't, those really go up against each other, don't they? Uh, Rudy, I want to ask you one last question. Keep the fire going, man. How do you stay passionate about what you do? I think everyone at some point, or hopefully everyone will find their calling, will find their passion. And I don't have one passion, I have other passions. Uh, Hashem, one day I'll be able to get married and have a family, and that'll also be a part of my passion. Amen. Amen. Um, Amen. But, but helping, helping Ami Salim forward is definitely uh, a passion of mine. I don't think it's my uh, soul's first lifetime doing this, um, because it's something that's always been very clear to me from a young age, and it's just what I'm supposed to do. Um, so, and I'm, I'm a very optimistic person because I see historically what we've come through, what we've been through, which is we've been living in much harsher realities than the ones today. We overcame much more uh, larger obstacles than the one in front of us. So I think we're living in actually in a great time. Um, and I'm very excited for what's going to come up moving forward because I do have faith in things changing. Um, so I'm motivated because I, I want to be able to see out uh, what's going to happen and to, to push for what we call Mashiach, which doesn't necessarily mean an individual coming and changing things. That's a very basic view of it, but more so generation achieving its mission statement of healing this world and fixing it and for it to function the way it's supposed to. That's exactly what our concept of Mashiach, that we bring the world to a certain state and then that individual comes because now we're prepared and we've done the hard work ourselves. Well, thank you. Rudy, for giving us your time, and more importantly, thank you for doing the hard work and earning, helping us, the Jewish people, earning the respect of the rest of the world. We don't do this for the respect of the rest of the world. I know you don't do that for that reason. We do it because it's the right thing. But when you do the right yeah. thing and you know who you are, Rabbi Jonathan Sacks in memory used to say that, you know, non-Jews respect Jews who respect their Judaism. And just the opposite, and just the opposite with those of us who unfortunately are questioning or not sure or are, we have to stand up proud and we have to be learned and knowledgeable. And I'm sorry to use this as a commercial for MGE, but please, everyone who's listening, we're getting closer to Pesach, one of the most important parts of our Jewish heritage and tradition to learn more about it. We've got a lot of classes going on, we're going to be doing a mock Seder next week and a lot of learning about what it meant to be a slave and to be subsequently emancipated, and how to observe the Chag, how to observe the holiday. Rudy, thank you so, so much for doing everything you do for the Jewish people. Uh, you said it before, so I'll say it now. Am Yisrael Chai, and may Hashem grant you the strength to continue to advocate on behalf of Israel, the state of Israel, the people of Israel, and to bring some great peace and tikkun olam to the world, because Hashem gave you, probably in a previous life too, as you said, a lot of kochot, to be able to do this, we stand behind you, and uh, we continue to admire you for the amazing work you do. Thank you so much for your time. Amen. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for everything you do. And I'm on tzlacha with everything going on. Amen. You when you're in New York, and we can get out of this COVID craze, you come and speak again. It would be an honor. Zat Hashem, and let me know when you're back home. Um, um, this summer, this summer, and my son is there. We have to talk. We'll be in touch. <laughs> Yeah, no. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. And thank, th thank everyone else in your place there that I had to keep quiet. I had to do the same thing here. I appreciate yeah, my, it. My filmmaker is my roommate, so he's here also. <laughs> Please send him my best. I will. Okay. All right. Call to all the best to you. I we hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store 
It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.